Okay, so my third choice and the penultimate record today is sort of coming back to the theme, actually, if we're tracing these connections between Germany, um, psychedelia, house music. So it's a record that's really, I guess for me personally, is really sort of important. Uh, This is a record that came out in, it's first this came out in 2005 uh, well i'll i'll introduce it and we can hear a bit and then i'll talk about it so this is uh ashral temple ain't no time for tears the sacred rhythm remix Okay, so this is a record that comes out in 2005. I mean, incidentally, uh, I feel like we're spending too much time talking about parties most listeners are never going to come to in detail, so I'll talk about it quickly. I mean, incidentally, though, our friend Simon Halpin, who is one of the key organisers of of the the London Loft Parties from the very beginning, got this record. He played it to me. He said, isn't that amazing? I said, that is absolutely unbelievable. He played it to David and he was very disappointed that David didn't seem that excited by it. Mm. And it beca- and then it became, it's an absolute kind of regular anthem at Beauty and the Beat and people love it. And people scream out the title of it when, you, when I play it sometimes because it's, people who've been going for years know it. And what it is, Ashra Temple were originally one of the... Um, the one of the original kind of German kind of psychedelic rock bands from the early seventies. So there's this term that is used by British music critics, and it was it was sort of a mocking term, but then it became sort of an affectionate term. This term kraut rock. So I don't really like to use the term, but I don't know what other terms are used. I mean, it was a seventies music press term, but then there was a, a wave of interest in that music. So I think the be- the most comprehensive book about it I know of was written by Julian Cope, the British uh, singer. Mm. Um, in the 90s. So there's a wave of interest in the 90s. And these bands included Can, who we've played on the show. They include uh, Noi, who I don't think we've played on the show yet. I'm sure we will eventually. They included Kraftwerk. I mean, that is the milieu out of which Kraftwerk came and you know, de- before they developed into this kind of purely electronic group. Various other kind of electronic pioneers, like sort of Cluster, um, people like that. And... Uh, and the guitarist and the kind of main driving force of Astral Temple is Manuel Goetching, who also produced some really important pioneering kind of electronic music uh, later on in the sort of late in the early eighties. Uh, this E2, track, E2, think, E2E4, we should yeah, name drop E2, that, E2, which E4. is a huge yeah. record for Larry Levan. Like it's 20, 20, 18 minutes, is it? Twenty minutes, it's a yeah, mesmeric E2. electronic track. Yeah. Uh, I remember when I, I used to go to Fat Cat Records in Covent Garden. That was like in the early to well, from the early to the late nineties. It was the the place in London for the most left field electronic music. And I remember going in there one day, and they only had one CD that was nearly all vinyl, and it was a CD of E two. What's it called? E two E four. E two E four. A chess move, obviously. Yeah, it's, yeah, that's right. Um, Paul so King four. Kind of like, <laughs> well done. <laughs> so. Um, yeah, so the track was actually recorded in 79, but I don't think it was released until 96 uh, on a compilation of 
uh, selection. I think it's called selections from the private tapes. I think something like that. And and then, but then the remix is by Joe Clasell, and Joe Clasell is an American, a New York-based deep house DJ and producer. He was one of the three people, along with Danny Crivet and Francois Kavorkian, uh, Francois Kavorkian who um, put on Body and Soul, the kind of deep, kind of you know key kind of deep house night in New York in the second half of the nineties that Tim's talked about going to on the two thousands, even early two thousands as well. But anyway, yeah, yeah go on. Um, and and he's basically known as a sort of he's known uh, he produces a lot of tracks of his own and he also remixes lots of stuff uh, but he's essentially yeah he's known as this sort of you know he's this sort of afrocentric figure you know he likes to dress in kind of african chieftain's robes and he, and he yeah there's a lot of kind of african elements in in a lot of his music but but I think for me, the Joe Clissell is, I mean, I love uh, lots of his productions. Like I'll, I'll hardly ever do a DJ set when I don't play some Joe Clissell. I think, and I think he is a figure who should be much better known in this country, actually. I mean, he's it's very, there's a tiny kind of community of, sort of deep house aficionados in Britain who sort of worship Joe Clissell, but nobody else has heard of him. He's never been, he's a kind of, he's one of very few kinds of music I could say, there's never been a Radio 6 or a Radio 1 show that would play this, like a BBC 6 or 1 or, or 1 Extra. There's never been a BBC show that would play this kind of music. It's never been, it was never covered in The Wire magazine and it wasn't really covered in things like Straight No Chaser otherwise. It just it sort of fell between all the cracks, this sort of psychedelic deep house. Um, but for me, but you know, so this came out in 2005, and so that's sort of seven, 16 years ago now. So I was quite early on, like I hadn't really even started using this term I love to use, Afro psychedelia. And I'd only just started to really become interested in this idea that there's this deep kind of psychedelic current coming out of New York, you know, which is mostly kind of black and, you know, black and, or, you know, Latinx and sort of mixed race artists and producers a lot of the time. And so, and it was quite, and that would have been a very surprising remark to make, like to lots of people, especially British kind of music fans or even critics and theorists to say, well, you know, there's this whole kind of African-American psychedelic tradition happening on the, on the East Coast. It would, it would have been a kind of counterintuitive claim for lots of people. It just would have seemed strange. So to me, this is one of those records I always say, the very existence of that record, I felt, proved something. The fact that it could exist at all, I thought, showed I was right. And, um, and, I was, and it's really, uh, and it's, you know, it's just the very fact that it exists is sort of remarkable. The very fact that it exists um, and that, that, you know, Clasell, who has this very strong identity as a sort of Afrocentric uh, African-American artist, um, wants to wants to make this sort of statement of allegiance to German, 70s German kind of acid rock is just sort of extraordinary and it's sort of fantastic and it is sort of one of the reasons that we're doing this show i think and just as a as a dance floor record as well it's the, probably the best the kind of guitar work on it is in, is there's something about the guitar style it's a little bit reminiscent of, of this kind of liquidity of jerry garcia's style but it's more percussive more kind of propulsive and somehow the guitar style kind of fits with a kind of dance context better than any other the work of any other rock guitarist I can think of. So somehow it's this incredibly danceable kind of, you know, electric rock guitar. Um, and there's a whole interesting set of questions, which we're not going to have time to get into here, but I, I want to get into at some point about that, that moment in German rock music. And I was, I was talking to somebody about this on some social media platform a few weeks ago, trying to work out, well, why, like, 
why is it the Germans who produced the most danceable rock music of the early 70s? Like, what, and what does that mean? Because like, it's been very important. It was a very important development for all kinds of later kinds of music. But it's... Um, and I think the reason... I think there is... I mean, my, my, my you know, thumbnail you know, theory about why that is, is just because... I think it's because actually so like soul was probably less well represented in kind of uh, in in German sort of music culture than in say British or French. And so if you wanted and so whereas if you're if you want danceable music in Britain or France in the early 70s you're not listening to rock music you're listening to soul or you're listening to like music coming out out, out of Africa or indeed Brazil or something. Because I think if you're in Germany there's less of that so you're list, so that you have to find ways of making rock music danceable. Mm. But that's a very that's a very rough idea. Anyway, what do you think of it? Yeah, I mean, I like that. I like the record. Um, I think it's a great record. Um, and I really like Joe's music. I went through a phase. I mean, I, when I moved to New York City in uh, 1995, and I was going down to dance tracks every Friday night because that was the night that imports came in. So that was the you know that was the most excitement in the store. And Joe was the co-owner of dance tracks, and he was working behind. Um, the, the turntables and basically he could sell anything uh you know he was very charismatic he's a great dj he does this thing with the equalizer that eventually at body and soul i did become a, a little weary of it um, now everyone's weary yeah, of yeah. it by now exactly <laughs> i mean so i became weary of it maybe 20 years ago um and in terms of it was like let me i'd like to hear a bit more of the record um yeah, he when constantly was, messes around with the yeah. equalizers so yeah. that you, the record sounds like it's being yeah. put through treatment filters, like, yeah. constantly. And, you know, there's been, you know, Larry Levan and a bunch of other DJs were, you know, Nicky Siano even would sort of do elements of this and it could be exciting, especially, you know, like if you just kind of managed to go to a rumbling bass for a kind of, you know, for a few, oh, I'm sure everyone listening will have experienced or m- many will have experienced this. So touch, you know, accenting this. I mean, David, of course, David Mancuso was radically against interfering with the original musical recording. It's a whole other philosophy, which we might discuss in some, no doubt in some detail one day uh other djs did it and it was kind of it was loved and look so many people loved it loved it when and still do when joe does it um but um yeah it was and it was incredible hearing him do it in the record store uh it was it felt like a privilege to be there it felt it did feel like kind of artistry it was very similar in some ways to i guess what we would call um the turntablism that became kind of associated with with hip-hop djing it was kind of real technical art form in itself um, and back then, you know, the spiritual life was, you know, label, which Joe ran alongside Stefan Prescott was kind of coming through strong. And I, I love, I really loved that music. Um, I was, and I bought tons of it. Um, and it was really, a, a you know, a significant reinvention of house music that had kind of started a little bit with figures like Louis Vega, who I'd sort of moved to New York City for in the first place. Louis was already beginning to work with kind of, you know, jazz samples and some Latin musicians and some even some jazz musicians in the in his work with uh, as masters at work with Kenny Dope Gonzalez, and bringing levels of kind of instrumental sophistication into dance music. And some of this had existed previously. Marshall Jefferson certainly integrated elements of this into some of his tracks. Um, but they, but you know, Louis took it to another level, and then Spiritual Life, you know, carried on that, and maybe placed, you know, became an, their absolute identity was to bring in live instrumentation. And so Joe is, you know, I just sort of salute and Stefan salute them for doing that. 
Um, I did, you know, I started to sell records on Discogs uh, after we both lost half of our jobs and decided to do a podcast to, to, you know, as one response to that. And one of my other responses was to sell a lot of records on Discogs. And I did find myself selling quite a lot of the Spiritual Life catalogue. Maybe I just had, I think I just had too many of them. It's just like I'd bought too many house music records at one point. I was kind of addicted to it. And then I really, you know, then 10 or 20 years you go and listen to this stuff really carefully and you realize that while you still love a lot of it you've kind of got too much of it um i do i do i've kind of it was interesting david when i was playing david records when he came over to um started to come over to london and wanted you know a bunch of us to play and what we were listening to i was still buying um a lot of joe closel records and it's true david never really liked us i don't he never really got into joe closel and um and i asked you know i did ask him why and he did feel that um it was too much that there would be a kind of a dark, you know, there'd be a kind of a, a rhythm would be established. And on top of that rhythm, in a, an instrumentalist, a musician would jam. And David kind of wanted ideas to be developed into a crescendo. Um, and and there for, 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 for each record to kind of have a kind of a, narr- a narrative development. And this was one of the things that he felt about some of these records. I don't know if it's fair or not. I'm reporting. Uh, I, I do. I really, I do really like this record. Um, I think it's great, and I, I do also love the original. And I suppose if I had to, I'd need to listen on the stereo to both of them. Uh, listen to them, kind of, you know, through not very good sound. Uh, this seems one of the one of the main things that Joe does on this is that it adds an organ on to the guitar solo. And this is just me at where I am right now. Um, but I feel like you know, I felt for a little while. There's kind of there's a lot of we've got a lot of long records. And we don't always need records to be incredibly long. There's something, that I've, I've, I mean, many people obviously, you know, have always been into or are getting into seven inches. Uh, that shift in dynamics between a long record and a short record kind of is really valuable. And so I do really love long records where you can get lost. And this is one of them, absolutely. But I also kind of, you know, it's kind of like, it's already quite a long record. Uh, does it need to, so I don't, the, what I would need to do is listen to what else Joe adds to it. Um, but also one of the things I valued about the remix is it did kind of, it also kept a lot of the kind of the feel of that original. It doesn't feel like a kind of, you know, straight up electronic remix. Um, and that's, that's, you know, that's quite important to me because a lot of records, you know, when there was a lot of, let's say, disco records that kind of got electronified, you know, got a more electronic kind of makeover. I did find, I'd bought quite a lot of that stuff as well. Quite a lot of them were masters of work. And I just found I got rid of every single one of them. Um, so I'm not anti-remix at all, but it's kind of when you're just kind of putting a kind of electronic beat onto something which is live, I'm not not always sure it works. Uh, but this this really does work, I think, in terms of like how the remix works. It feels like it's it feels, still feels pretty organic. Uh, 